Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. This is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And uh, today's the day we bring you messages that you've sent in over the past couple of weeks. Uh, So today we've got some messages about the Kuleshov effect, about uh, vault episodes on mushroom foraging. But I think first we're going to start off with a response to our series on tumbleweeds. Yes. Now, I have to say, and this is something that you pointed out, we have fewer messages than we usually have. So I'm going to try and speak very slowly. (laughs) And hopefully, if I pause enough, we'll be able to go 30 minutes or so here. Oh, oh, that's a brilliant idea. (laughs) Excuse me, that is a brilliant idea idea (laughs) all right i don't know if we can sustain this well i'll I'll probably go back to normal speed here they can Uh, easily defeat us by just going to the 2x speed or whatever on playback that's right they're just and then but then we'll cause like some sort of whiplash if we Uh go super slow and then we start speeding up again and we don't want to we don't want to do that we don't want to uh do that to the listeners folks have we annoyed you enough today already or (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's jump into it. Uh, This one comes to us from Bill. It's titled Tumbleweeds. Bill writes, your show has edutained me for years, but I am shocked that of all the fascinating topics that you have covered, it is the seed spreading of dead flora that has brought in the most email. I am in southern Utah, which has a huge supply of Russian thistle that rolls around the area, gets caught in the dust devils, which elevate them hundreds of feet above the terrain, and of course clog up drainage ditches, slot canyons, and even damages cars if the central quote-unquote trunk of the bush is large enough to damage the frail plastic of modern cars. Some of these beasts can reach 8 to 10 feet in diameter. My job, throwing people off of cliffs, keeps me surrounded by these mesmerizing, rolling nuisances as I hike and climb through remote desert areas. Of all the places where you don't want to tangle with these uh, are in some of the slot canyons of Lake Powell. There are places where one has to wade and swim through a hundred yards of lake-soaked tumbleweeds that could easily be five to ten feet thick from the lake bottom to just below the surface. They quickly sink, but take quite a while to fully break down. This leaves years, if not decades, of submerged spiky residue to contend with. Keep up your amazing content and delivery, Bill. Wow, what a hellish scene you have described. So, like, slot canyons that have water at the bottom, and then that water is just full of, like, years of buildup of, of slowly rotting tumbleweeds. Yeah, I love, I love this detail. We're, we're learning more and more about the devastation wrought by the Russian thistle. I'm assuming the job of throwing people off of cliffs here is uh, some sort of, uh, like, bungee cord-related <laughs> <laughs> venture. You know, base jumping or something. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I, I hope this is not a confession from a serial killer in our yeah, mailbox. He's just a crazed uh, desert dweller that throws people off of cliffs whenever he finds them. Uh, but he does not clarify, so, does so not, I guess we'll, no. we'll just have to assume the best. Quantum state. All right. Are you ready for this message from Lauren on our vault episodes about mushroom foraging? Oh, Yes. 
Okay, Lauren says, hello, Robert and Joe. Uh, and then she starts off by saying some some very nice things about the show and talks about how she started listening to us this past December and has been exploring a bunch of our episodes ever since then. So Lauren begins, after listening to the second Vault episode about mushroom foraging, the information about the two types of fruit flies made me think about the times in my youth when I very occasionally played Super Mario on the <laughs> Nintendo 64, the one where you jump through paintings to enter worlds with goals to complete. Um, now, uh, for people who haven't revisited the mushroom episodes uh, recently, we should probably do a quick refresher on what the deal with the different foraging styles was. Uh, basically, the idea here is that research has identified a gene found in a variety of animals called PRKG1 and found that in uh, some very different animals, though a lot of the research is in fruit flies, which variant of this gene you have, which PRKG1 allele you have, seems to correlate with preferences in foraging behavior. And in fruit flies, at least, they identify two distinct types of foragers that are called sitters and rovers. And these two styles have various implications, but uh, the simplified version is that sitters tend to be more conservative in their foraging patterns. So they will stick close to the boundaries of established foraging areas, and they have shorter paths of exploration, whereas rovers tend to be more adventurous. They tend to explore foraging environments with long search paths and a greater tendency to dive right into the exposed center of open foraging areas. So there are probably a lot of implications to this, but it seems at least possible that this may have something to do with risk aversion, right? That sitters by sticking to more uh, established foraging regions and sticking close to sheltered boundary areas of, of foraging zones, uh, they take fewer risks. But of course, they also suffer opportunity costs compared to the rovers, which may be, you know, taking more risks by just sort of venturing right out into open space. But they're also more likely to discover new food sources by doing that. Uh, there is some research to indicate that possessing different variants of a foraging-associated gene might also be correlated with similar behavior preferences in humans, though th that's the kind of uh, assumption that I'm always a little bit cautious about. So I'd, I'd want really good uh, research basis before before going whole hog on that uh, on that foraging gene type idea in humans. But anyway, uh, to come back to Lauren, this, I remember she was talking about Super Mario 64. Which yes. I, I remember that game fondly. I love jumping into the paintings too. You know, I don't think I ever played this one, but uh, I had to look it up to, to see which one it was. I'm vaguely familiar with Mario uh, Super Mario 64, but uh, I was surprised to see that it's uh, apparently popped up in different peer-reviewed medical studies. Um, oh yeah, yeah, where they'll have uh, uh, they'll be testing something or another, uh, studying some something or another, and they will have uh, test subjects play Super Mario 64. Now, I'm not sure if there's something special about Mario 64 uh, that, that makes it uh, the ideal thing to make your test subjects do, uh, but uh, fascinating nonetheless. Well, it's a rather magical game. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, if somebody out there at some point found that, that a little bit of Super Mario 64 was, was good for what ails you, at least <laughs> maybe in dispelling certain types of dysphoria or something. I don't know. Right. But yeah, so it's it's a game where you jump through paintings to go into different like subworlds. And so so Lauren picks back up in her original email. When I'd enter a painting world for the first time or for the first time in a while, I would always walk or swim the perimeter of the world to get a sense of the boundaries of the terrain. 
I wanted to know which directions were worth traveling in, and also, if I was going to search the entire terrain, I thought it best to cover the small pockets in full before expanding my search so that I didn't have to return later or repeatedly, unnecessarily. I did this with Zelda as well. After listening to this episode, I got to wondering about the expectations of video game developers. If they anticipate their players uh, to have a, quote, run into the center and aim for the biggest attraction or enemy sort of mindset, or if they expect players to behave in other ways. I wondered if, for certain games, I was being set up for success or failure not based on my intelligence, but on the preferences and possible genetics of the video game creator who established these rules to the game without considering the possibility that people hunt and gather in different ways. Thanks again, Lauren. Yeah, I think this is really interesting, Lauren, because I, you know, I, I don't know what I think about a uh, how strongly determinant a single foraging gene could be on the behaviors of humans. But uh, for whatever reason, I think I am very much a sitter fly when it comes to virtual environments and video games. I, you know, when I'm playing a video game. I hate having to run into the middle of previously unexplored territory. I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm a cautious explorer. I like to understand the landscape before I enter. I survey it from, from the sheltered periphery, look at it from high ground, and so forth. I mean, I guess different games, um, they reward different types of behavior. Uh, I yeah. guess, or, or they can. Some games are certainly going to uh, maybe be broader in their approach and play tested in different ways to where you, you can you can take multiple strategies um but this is a, a great question I, I'd, I'd love to hear from anyone out there with more familiarity with the, the game design world it, it does remind me a little bit of of the situation with uh with uh, if, if i remember correctly with fallout 76 uh when it came out uh, i think the idea with that was they were like all right we're going to get all these people into this virtual shared fallout world and they're just going to fight each other and they're going to have a great time fighting each other and it turns out like most people playing it didn't actually want to fight each other they wanted to do other things and so there was a period of time uh, during which i was i was playing the game where uh even though the game wanted you to kill each other people were tending to do the opposite and they mm-hmm. were trying to do something more communal and then eventually the game uh developers the game masters kind of catch up with with that uh and mm-hmm. and kind of shift the shape of the uh, the virtual environment to meet the way people wanted to actually play the game it's interesting i i never played that game the only thing i i, rem- I know you've mentioned it a couple of times but i think the only other thing i've seen about it was that for some reason people were mad about it like was it buggy or something um Oh, I'm trying to even remember. It may have been buggy at first. I mean, not not catastrophically so. Uh, I enjoyed uh, yeah. playing. I must have played it pretty steadily for for over a year. It was kind of a, huh. a kind of a comfort food for me uh, for a little bit there. Um, I gotta say, I rather enjoy a buggy game. Sometimes <laughs> I get a lot of pleasure out of that. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 a lot of these bugs become memes, right? Yeah, yeah. But I, I would love to hear more of, more about this because uh, I guess nowadays you tend to have games that are created by. By large groups, and hopefully those groups will be like diverse enough in their mindset to where somebody at, at some point will be like, "Well, hey, what if you don't want to run into the middle of this room? What if you want to, uh, you know, play more like a rogue or something? Uh, should we make space for that to happen?" But then I wonder if that it was was less likely during the era of uh, you know more, more like a sole developer on a video game. Mm, yeah, I wonder. Then again, I guess there might also be just different types of games uh, mm-hmm. that 
that appeal more to the 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 sitter type personality versus the rover type personality. Like I, there are certain types of games that there are a ton of in our uh, generation that I just don't ever enjoy at all. Like the like the military shooter type games that hold like no appeal for me. But it seems like maybe they'd be more appealing to somebody with kind of more of a rover personality who likes to just run in and start shooting at anything that moves. Yeah, yeah. Though, though, I, even in those games, I remember you know back in the days of, of Doom, uh, like the original Doom and the original Quake, and those games, uh, you know, you'd have people who wanted to, uh, to 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 camp out, to just hang out in one spot on the map, and then <laughs> yeah. just snipe people when they moved in. Um, and and I think some of these games like uh, like Half Life eventually caught up with that and said, okay, well let's let's make sure there are different roles for these different types of players within uh, a given like deathmatch uh, situation. Oh yeah, I guess I guess they're usually I, you probably can tell I don't play multiplayer games very much, but they're usually like different player classes in those games, right? Yeah. All right, should we move on to the next one here? Sure, let's go for uh, it. This one comes from Brenda, and this has to do with their episode on the Klushov effect. Hi, Robert and Joe. I'm a longtime listener and love your show. I'm currently recovering from COVID and as such have had an unusual amount of free time as I cannot go to work. I've been using this time to catch up on my favorite podcasts and yours always takes the top spot. I just finished listening to the Kuleshov Effect episodes, and the thing that came to mind for me was memes. We have a whole culture of intentionally taking expressions and clips out of context and matching them with whatever images or blurbs fit what we would like to express. The popular woman screaming at a cat meme comes to mind. Perhaps it is not a perfect connection, but it seems to me that in the age of social media, the edit is more important than the actor. Thanks. Brenda. Yeah, this is a good point. Uh, I don't know. If it, so there's one big difference, I think, with the the uh, the alleged Kuleshov effect in the uh, in the original Majukin experiment, which was supposedly that it was like an expressionless face on uh, that the actor was using, mm-hmm. and then that was paired with whatever most I think meme faces are not usually expressionless. They're they're like. I don't know. They've got some kind of directed content, but then you fill in a blank in the imply in the sentence that's implied by the meme with whatever the subject of the meme is. You know, the thing it's reacting to, or the text you put on it, and and so forth. Yeah, I'm th- I'm I'm instantly thinking of a lot of these meme faces where where yeah, it's pretty obvious what the emotional impact is supposed to be. It, a lot of times, it's this versus that. Like it's yeah. the the woman making the the disgusted face and then the, you know, considering it face or it's Drake saying, no, he doesn't want this. And then saying, yes, he does want this. Right. So it's, there's not a lot of ambiguity. Maybe I'm, 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 um, you know, I'm just not thinking of a good example, but, uh, I, I, off the top of my head, I'm not thinking of any, um, any, any meme faces that leave a lot of room to imagine uh, what that individual thinks of the thing that they're supposedly looking at or considering. But I do think, nevertheless, there, there's really something going here because the meme culture, I think, connects more to the Kuleshavian vision of of filmmaking where you would just have these sort of like endlessly rearrangeable building blocks that are mm-hmm. then uh, – the, the editor uses them to make meaning in endless combinations. So, I mean, and memes are kind of that way. It, it's not so much that, you know, you're seeing neutral faces that you're reading – expressions onto because of the context, but you are seeing things that are just treated as building blocks that can be repurposed to any situation. Yeah. 
All right. Uh, this next message is also about the Kuleshov effect. This is from somebody. I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce your name. It's spelled D I O N. That might be Dion or uh, Dion. I'm not sure. I'll, I'll try uh, uh, Dion. Dion says, Dear Rob and Joe and Stuff to Blow Your Mind crew, massive fan of the show. Uh, I just had to make this contribution to your discussion of the Kuleshov effect. I hope you find it useful or interesting. It's worth considering the role of another editing element of the modern film, and that is sound. Kuleshov's work was done before fully synchronized sound, although it is worth noting that music almost always played a role in cinema in the West. It's commonly cited that music was used to cover up the sound of the noisy film projectors of the day. Oh yeah, I can only imagine what kind of clattering racket those things would have made. (laughs) Uh, But the email goes on. But beyond that, there are many examples of sound being used in the same way we use modern score. That is to influence or manipulate an audience's perceptions or emotions and ultimately drive the film narrative. Michel Chion, and uh, this is the name of a French filmmaker and composer, uh, talks about a concept called added value. Added value is where images on screen and sound combine to create new meaning. This meaning is greater, different, or more complex than the original meaning of each part in isolation. And then Dion gives the example of how you can use like atmospheric sound paired with a shot of an apartment interior to set very different kinds of, of scenes. Like you might hear uh, you might hear kind of birds twittering and, and breeze blowing, in which case you assume this apartment is is somewhere in kind of like a, a peaceful countryside setting. Or you might hear like loud traffic and horns honking and and the bustle of people and voices, in which case you assume that the uh, the apartment is somewhere in the city and it's urban and things are happening and busy. Dion writes, Each scenario sets the scene for a completely different narrative, while the picture remains the same. Actually, sound does this in a very economical way, very quickly, without even drawing our awareness to it. I recommend Xi'an's book, Audio Vision, Sound on Screen, since you're interested in this nerdier side of film. Uh, this was published in English in 1994. Xion's work corresponds with the availability of videotape, which simplified the repetitive study of filmic material in a classroom setting. Oh, that's a funny detail. I don't know if I've ever put that together before, but I wonder if uh, I wonder how the the advent of home video changed trends in film criticism and film theory, just because it suddenly would become so much easier to rewatch films and scene from films yeah yeah i mean i certainly remember uh, as a kid the films that i loved and of course i feel like oftentimes when you're a kid you do watch things over and over again but mm-hmm. i would just i would put things on like slow motion loops when possible <laughs> you know it'd be like the melting scenes in raiders of the lost ark and it wasn't <laughs> enough to just watch it once you know you had to slow it down you had to, you had to freeze frame and all of this so, so it's you know thank goodness those effects were really solid Watching that Nazi turn to soup, it made you the man you are today. <laughs> but yeah, I know, I know exactly what you're talking about. But if I had had, you know, if I'd wanted to and I had more of an appreciation for, for the, you know, the actual, uh, you know, art and craft of cinema at the time, that mm-hmm. is the kind of thing I could have looked to. I could have, I could have slowed it down and, said, and, and asked myself, well, well what, is, um, you know, what is Spielberg actually doing here? How is, he, how is he pulling me in with this particular sequence? How is it cut? And then how might I recreate the same thing? Absolutely. But, uh, but to come back to the email, uh, Dion writes, 
To bring this back to Kuleshov's idea of the manipulation of an image, I used to teach a subject about film sound, and we would do an exercise that was always really effective. It went like this. You would choose a short section of film. You'd choose some music from a variety of genres, like horror, romantic comedy, drama, etc., and then you'd play back the scene with the new music and discuss the results. Simple, but effective. We would do this in groups, and I found over the years that the driving to the Bates Motel scene in Hitchcock's Psycho from 1960 was very effective for this exercise. Uh, and then Dion provides a link to the scene, which I did a little experiment with. I paired up the Psycho scene with, with Janet Lee with the silver shamrock music from season of the witch. And it did indeed produce a different effect, though. I don't know if it was, uh, uh, I mean, I guess the effect it produced was, was well within the wheelhouse of the movie psycho already. Would you say that she appeared more irritated than, uh, <laughs> yes, than afraid? <laughs> yes. Uh, or maybe I would say that honestly, the idea that came to my head was she was afraid that she found herself hating her own children because they were singing <laughs> the song so much. Yeah, yeah, I can. Uh, I have not tried this myself, but just looking at it, I'm imagining like some of the stuff you could drop in. Uh, you know, you could certainly drop in some some other forms of tense music. You could also drop in something that's maybe a little more emotional. You know, like I'm thinking some some sort of modern, I don't know, Lana Del Rey sort of music. You know, and uh, it would take on uh, I think a different vibe. Well, I like what uh, Dion says, which is, uh, quote, I was always surprised by the new possibilities. Without going into them all, I recall watching the scene to a disco track. And this had the scene <laughs> taking on the sense of a cheesy romantic comedy. All of a sudden, Janet Lee's nuanced performance is turned into simply before date jitters. I can totally <laughs> okay. see that. All and right. I love it. That, that I think it works. Uh, Dion says, of course, the face remains the same, but we attribute different meaning to it as per the Kuleshov effect. I found the temporal nature of the results interesting, too. Some music choices would give the sense of leaving something behind, while some would create tension about the future, like the original score. Uh, and then Dion encourages us to take a few moments to try it for ourselves, uh, like the, the kind I already described. Uh, this part I thought was really interesting, that certain certain pairings would cause you to see the emotion on her face as reactive to something that already happened and others would cause you to see it as anticipatory. Mm, yeah. I, I mean, I didn't actually play it, but I've been watching it the whole time and I was just uh, running uh, Abba's dancing queen through my head yeah. whilst looking at it. And I can, I can sort of get the, uh, you know, the, the point here about like sort of the disco vibes uh, and how that would uh, potentially steer interpretation. Like it turns the 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 paranoia that she has about the fact that she stole all this money in the movie and is wondering is worried about what's going to happen. It turns that into that is what happened in that scene, right? Didn't she take a bunch of money and run away? I, I believe so. It. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, yeah, it turns that into like being worried about what people are going to think about her at the party or something. <laughs> Anyway, uh, the email goes on. Perhaps at odds to all of this, there are quite a number of studies that display the primacy of vision over sound. White noise is regarded as more pleasant when associated with the picture of a waterfall, for example, and red trains are louder. Uh, and then 
there there are links to a couple of citations for this. Abe et al. 1999 uh, in the study called The Effects of Visual Information on the Impression of Environmental Sounds. And then Fostel et al. in 2004, Audiovisual Interactions in Loudness Evaluation. Uh, but then finally, Dion cites something called the McGurk effect. Uh, the McGurk effect is an example of this idea of visual dominance. Uh, this is an interesting and persistent illusion credited to cognitive psychologists McGurk and McDonald in 1976. Rob, here's a visual example I linked to that you can check out for yourself, but I'll uh, try to explain it. So if you watch video of somebody making a sound repeatedly, the, the example I found was a man just re- saying ba, 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 like a sheep, B-A-H, mm-hmm. over and over. And uh, and something very strange happens if you continue playing the same audio but substitute in video of the guy looking like he's making an F sound with his mouth. So it would be fa, 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 even though the audio doesn't change at least on me, I absolutely hear fa, 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 even though technically mm-hmm. the audio is the same ba, ba, ba as it was before. Interesting. And, and the, at least subjectively, the effect is profound on me. I like, I, I absolutely hear fa, fa, fa. It's as <laughs> if that's what he was actually saying. Anyway, uh, Dion finishes up by saying that they're uh, working toward their their PhD, doing research in uh, sound design of film dialogue, and uh, ends up saying some very nice things about the show, and uh, in saying, I love the stuff and could talk about it all day, but I'll stop now. Warm regards, Dion. Oh. Well, thanks. This was a really great email. Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, I'm, I'm going to just busy myself now with playing different uh, different works of music <laughs> over that psycho scene. I think Janet Lee's face in the psycho scene is yet another good example of a face that is ambiguous but not neutral. You could uh, you could read multiple things into it. Though I guess it would be hard to imagine that she looks happy, but you could read multiple different kinds of negative emotion into her face. All right, let's do let's do one more here. This one comes to us from Morgan. Morgan writes, "Hey fellas, Love the show, and I hope you're doing well. I just wanted to address your comments regarding the Witcher drawing his sword. While they don't appear this way in the games, and it's not explicitly addressed in the books, in the show, the TV show, um, the scabbard is not continuous, and that it essentially just holds the tip of the sword in place, and a strap secures it toward the hilt. A scabbard designed this way would allow the blade to move independently of the uh, length scabbard until it clears the strap at the top. Also, the books usually point out that Geralt loosens the strap on his scabbard uh, when he may need to draw, allowing for further mobility. Additionally, and semi-related, only in the games does the Witcher carry two swords at once. Typically, if he's carrying a sword on his back, it's just the one he needs to use for the current foe. His other remains in the carrying case on the saddle. I've attached an image below which shows the scabbard. And yep, there it is. All right. Now, if you're totally confused by this, I think this person is responding to me in a previous listener mail saying uh, that that the Witcher's sword would not work. But I was talking about in the video games because in the video games, he wears his sword in a full scabbard. It's like a solid scabbard encasing the blade but on his back and i was just pointing out you can't draw a sword like that because your arm is not long enough to get it out of the scabbard if it's on your back but so on the show it sounds like they've got a workaround for that by saying well the scabbard isn't actually solid it's just like 
the tip point is solid and then there's a strap. So he'd, ha- he'd have to loosen the strap and then pull it out a little bit and then he can just like he doesn't have to pull it out the full length because it's not actually solid all the way around. Mm, yeah. This makes me want to do uh, something on swords again. I, I know we've covered swords and blades and weapons to a certain degree in the past. I know you love swords, man. Well, I mean, you know, a movie with a good sword scene. <laughs> oh, yeah. A good sword fight. A good sword fight's hard to find in a motion I'm picture. Game. Sword yeah. fight that tells a story. Um, I, I do vaguely remember yeah, you, you get into like the history of various um, styles of sword play, and it, uh, it gets pretty fascinating. Like There are all these sort of distinct martial art forms that... Uh, in some cases are you know partially forgotten but also easy to uh, you know to, to to not recognize when you just see an illustration of the image especially i'm thinking of some of these you know very large swords you just sort of think well you just go up there and you start swinging it around right but but no there's a particular <laughs> a particular uh, form there's a particular way that you would use this weapon effectively in combat Maybe that's an episode. We do one on great swords, you know? Like okay. Really big swords. <laughs> and what, what circumstances do they make sense? And then how often do, uh, do we see that same logic applied to, uh, to, to, to video games or uh, scenes in fantasy movies? All right, man. I'm there. All right. All right, we're going to go ahead and call it there. But uh, obviously, we'd love to hear from everybody. If you have thoughts on anything we've discussed here today, we can talk about it in a future listener mail episode. We do these every Monday. Our core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind come out on Tuesdays and Thursdays. On Wednesday, we do a short-form artifact episode. And on Friday, uh, that's when we do Weird Al Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious matters and just discuss a weird film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback, back on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your mind.com stuff to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio. for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite shows